Please stand for the reading of God's word. From Matthew 26, 36 through 56. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, oh. <laughs> It's not picking you up. I see. Shall I start over? Yeah. Sorry. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled, that it must be so? At that hour Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your holy word. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you illuminate the text for us even now. You are the one who enabled us to embrace Jesus, 
seeing that he truly is the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. And we rejoice in the work that he has done in saving us. Lord, we pray that you would open your word in our hearts and minds now, preparing us for this moment when we come to your table, that we might feast, that we would have the appropriate affection and emotion and the appropriate understanding mentally of what took place, a glimpse that opens up our eyes to see more of your glory and majesty, your sacrifice and suffering, your promises fulfilled, just as your word said they would be. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening to you sing and listening to the choir sing is always encouraging to me. When we hear a song like we just heard, My Jesus, I Love Thee, I think it's important for Christians, true Christians, to hear the encouragement that you really do. You really do love him. You would not be here tonight if you didn't love Jesus. And you would not love Jesus if he did not love you first. You are here tonight because you love him. Or you're here tonight because I would believe you're on your way to loving him. Or you're here tonight maybe because you love someone who loves him and you just want to make them happy. But you're here. And what you're seeing is a thousand plus people that really love Jesus. I love him. I do. And that's why I hate so much the sin that still is in my life. Those moments when his spirit convicts me and I know that I've turned away. I know that I've thought wrong thoughts said wrong things, failed to do things I should do. And every one of us in Christ knows that feeling. Tonight we come to a text that is so important. James Montgomery Boyce, in quoting one commentator, said that this text should be approached with God's people coming on their knees every time they come to it. Because what we are witnessing is our Savior alone. And He is with people who really love Him. And He's with an individual that it looked like He loved Him. And then He is with those people who hated Him from the very beginning and are delighting that it's finally happening that he's about to be arrested. And in this narrative, you see all the reasons why Jesus had to die. It's there in the eyes of every character in the verses you just heard. First, let's start with the eyes of the eleven. Matthew tells us that 
the 11 had followed Jesus. Jesus knew what was coming. The hour had come. And as he's moving towards this garden, gardens are a significant part of history, the history of redemption. As he is heading towards this garden, he wants to be alone with the Father, but he wants the presence of his close friends too. He asks a couple of them to go a little further with them. And then Jesus begins to pray. And he actually prays the prayer that he taught his disciples to pray. Your will be done. Three times. Your will be done. Your will be done. He asks the disciples to stay. And there we see their eyes. And how does Matthew and the other gospel writers describe them? Sleepy. Sleepy eyes. Why were their eyes sleepy? Well, first, because of ignorance. The disciples had heavy eyes because while they were so close to Jesus, they still were so clueless about what was happening. It was ignorance that led them to this, this place of just resting and not being and doing the very things that the Lord had told them to. In ignorance, they were oblivious to the significance of what was happening, the intensity and the urgency of all that was unfolding right before them. They could see Jesus. And Luke tells us Jesus was sweating blood. They could hear Jesus, and Jesus was saying, my soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. And yet, they slept. They failed to grasp the pain that was overwhelming Jesus. They didn't see or heed his warning to watch and pray because they were ignorant. They couldn't truly fathom all that was happening before them. They were also sleepy because of overconfidence. Peter, above all, said, even if I must die, I will never deny you. Even if all others fall away, not me. And they all agreed. You know, self-confidence, overconfidence leads to easy slumber. There in that moment, none of them were afraid that they would fall away. Even though the Lord of the universe, their teacher, the one that they saw tell the truth and the truth always happened, told them you will fall away. Stay awake, watch, unless you're overcome by temptation. Could not happen to us. And so they slept, ignorant and overconfident. There's another reason Luke tells us in his account of the narrative in Luke 22:45 he says that they slept because of sorrow of grief and we know their hearts were heavy they were heavy with confusion heavy with the things that Jesus was saying heavy that he had told them at that meal that one of you will betray me and so they were sorrowful they had grief but their grief didn't compare to the grief that Jesus was experiencing. Our Savior's grief, while it relates to us, is so different than ours. 
The only way we could even begin to comprehend, even at the smallest level, the grief of Christ would be for you to consider those moments in your life when your heart truly broke. Those moments in your life when you were betrayed. Those moments in your life when you were so afraid of what was coming and you knew it was going to come. And in this case, Jesus knows that the hour has come. And his heart is not just breaking because one of his disciples has betrayed him. He is about to take on the sin of the world, all of it. Every evil deed, every bitter thought, every form of rejection, every injustice, every murder, every war, all of it, inside you, inside me, outside of us. And he was going to take on the perfect wrath of his father, becoming sin, that we might live forever. They were ignorant to all that was happening. They were overconfident in their flesh, and they were under deep sorrow. But in the end, Jesus tells us why they slept. And these words from Jesus' mouth in the Greek, and it might not be that easy to see in the English, are actually very tender. He says in verse 41, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Our flesh like the 11, is far weaker than we want to admit. Our flesh is so, so weak. We want to stay awake. I believe the disciples did. I don't believe any one of them wanted to flee. Yet they did because their flesh was so weak. Their spirit was willing. You'll see it in a minute as Peter. We know it's Peter because one of the other disciples told on him. He raises the sword. He's not trying to cut off his ear. I'm sure he's aiming for his head. I mean that. That's not Mark just being fine. I mean that. And in that zeal, there that confidence comes. Soon, he's going to be asked if he knows him, and three times he's going to say no. The weakness of the flesh is an amazing thing. And in the weakness of the flesh, grief has made their eyes heavy. Overconfidence has made their eyes heavy. Ignorance has made their eyes heavy. And we're just like them. Our flesh is weak. Too many of us aren't living with the appropriate intensity and urgency of what it means to be light and darkness, the light of Christ shining through us. We are so overconfident that we make vows, sometimes out loud, sometimes quietly, about the ways we're going to follow him. We sleep through those vows. We say it's really hard to have a devotional life Yet we can drink in the primetime dribble of triviality every night 
endlessly playing video games, are just flipping through channels, are listening to countless accounts of news over and over again when we already know what the people are going to say, when we could be memorizing his word, seeking his face, actually doing what Jesus says to do here, pray and watch unless you fall into temptation. But because of the same things, ignorance, overconfidence, and grief, sorrow, we turn to other things instead of what he has given us. And all it is is a sign of the weakness of the flesh. And our eyes get heavy, my friends, and I sleep and you sleep. Sometimes with our eyes open, it doesn't look like we're slumbering. In fact, it looks like we might really be active. But deep down, we are not engaged in what he tells us to be engaged in. Stay awake. Watch. That's one of the sets of eyes. The second set of eyes belongs to one man. And his problem is completely the opposite. His eyes are not closed. They're not heavy with sleep. His eyes have been seduced. And they're wide open. Judas has his eyes fixed on turning this man in. Earlier in this chapter, he goes to the chief priest and he says in verse 14, 15, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? Don't let this narrative and the familiarity of it cause you to miss the profound pain and darkness of this man. Satan had entered him. That's what the word of God says. Just like he did in the Garden of Eden. He seduced those with lies. And now Judas is beginning to see something with his eyes fixed on a different treasure. Jesus is no longer his treasure. And as he sees what he thinks will make him happy, what will bring him life, his eyes are wide open. He wants it. He wants this man turned over. He wants to delight in Jesus being arrested. He's evil. Satan is in him. And he's seduced. And he surrenders to that seduction. And the gospel writers are so careful to remind us verse after verse of what that looks like. Go to verse 47. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Here, this man with these seduced eyes is witnessing a crowd gathering, and they're coming with weapons. And they're coming with weapons against the very one who made the steel and the wood that they would use to form these weapons. In fact, he made the men carrying them. And the crowd comes, and they're moving towards our Savior. They're moving towards the one we thought was his friend. And then he says, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. What was going on inside Judas? Well, he had been seduced. He surrendered to that seduction. And he came up to Jesus at once. And he said, greetings, rabbi. It's really a lie. He was no longer his rabbi. And he kissed him, that intimate connection, so that those in the crowd, the religious leaders, 
could see that's the man in the midst of the darkness. That's Jesus. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. And they did. And Judas witnessed it. They came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Here, the eyes of man seduced by an enemy, Satan, that says this is what will give you life. This material greed, this will give you life. This powerful position of turning someone, this will give you life. Like Judas, we all were born into a world seduced by the enemy and were born enslaved to Satan. We weren't just bad. We weren't just spiritually sick. We were spiritually dead. Ephesians 2 is very clear on what that looks like. And then Jesus, because of his incredible grace, saves us. And between now and the moment in which we go into glory and see him face to face, that seducer, that liar, that deceiver continues to seek to take our eyes off of the one and only one who is the way, the truth, and the life, the only one that can give us life, the only one that can fulfill everything that we need, all of it. And he says, no, 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 you need this too, or this instead of. The abundant life is not life just in Christ. It's life in Christ and add these things to it. If that wasn't true, then we would not have things to confess. But we always have things to confess, the sight of heaven, because each day we wake with an enemy seeking to seduce us to believe the wrong things about Jesus and the wrong things about everything else. And then the light comes in and the truth is known and we see the destruction of that seduction. There's a third set of eyes. And this is the eyes of the religious leaders. These are the self-righteous eyes. We have the sleepy eyes. We have the seduced eyes. And we have the self-righteous eyes. The self-righteous eyes are the eyes in a group of people who hated Jesus the most from the very beginning. They're the ones who have come with clubs. They're the ones who have ordered the crowd to come, all for their purpose of arresting Jesus. Their eyes are fixed on him being destroyed. The Messiah, Jesus, is not what they think. From the beginning, they couldn't see that Jesus is the promised one. They couldn't see that he really is the way, the truth, and the life. And from the beginning, Jesus was their number one enemy, and they wanted to put an end to him now. And so here, we see the religious, the self-righteous, those who think that they can earn their way to heaven, who actually believe in their own religion that they're doing something that's honoring to God. And they seek to kill God. It's easy to be hard on these religious leaders. Yet, if we're honest, there's self-righteousness in each of us. In fact, so often when we come to the table, self-righteousness can be on full display where we think that we've got to do something in order to make ourselves worthy of coming to this table. You can't. Your flesh is too weak. My flesh is too weak. Self-righteousness is not what we're called to. 
dependence on the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ alone is what we're called to. And so that's where we have to end. So many times a preacher preaches a sermon that leaves a congregation with their eyes fixed on themselves. Leaving a time like this saying, you know what? I do need to wake up. I'm not going to be sleepy anymore. I need to be less confident. I'm going to be less confident. I need to handle my grief appropriately. My weakness of flesh, I'm going to deal with that. But the truth is, that seducer would love to seduce you with that message. Because it keeps your eyes fixed on you and not on Jesus. The text for us is about the eyes of Christ. And where were they? Well, Jesus had his eyes fixed on the Father. His grief was way beyond any grief that any of us and all of us collectively could never even know. His grief is so great that he really is sweating blood. His grief is so great that it really is taking him to a place where his soul was overwhelmed to the point of death. And what is Jesus, God, man, doing? He's doing what he told the disciples to do. He's praying and he's watching. And as he prays to the Lord three times, he says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Because he knows what this cup means. Yet not my will be done, thy will be done. Three times. And the answer from his father each time was, not spoken, but the lack of it being spoken revealed what Jesus knew. It was for Jesus to be crushed, to drink that cup, to take on the sin of the world. So as Jesus is there, he submits to drinking the cup. The soldiers come and Jesus shows restraint and grace and power and authority. He's in complete control. He is. What he submitted to doing is going to be completed. It is going to be finished. Jesus, in this narrative, reveals to us that he empathizes tenderly with our weakness. But he does so much more. He overcomes it. He, his eyes, focused on the Father. The second Adam is doing what the first Adam couldn't do, didn't do. And then Jesus, tested in that moment, remains fixed on his Father. And he fulfills what had to be fulfilled. And there in the garden, he suffers deep grief, deep sorrow, deep rejection. And the text ends by Matthew saying, then all the disciples left him and fled. They didn't want to. They loved him. But their flesh was so weak that in that moment, it felt like the right thing to do to run from that man. Jesus Christ alone goes to the cross, dies the death that we all deserve to die. 
after living the life that none of us could live. So when we consider coming to the table, what should be going through our hearts and minds tonight? I shared this Sunday morning a hymn called Did Christ Over Sinners Weep? These are the first two lines, first few lines. Did Christ over sinners weep and shall our cheeks be dry? Let floods of penitential tears and grief burst forth from every eye. Behold, that means see, Behold the Son of God in tears. The angels wandering see. Hast thou no wonder, O my soul? He shed those tears for thee. You love him. You're on your way to loving him. Or maybe you don't. But for those who do, this table represents so clearly the love that came towards us first. Our flesh was never going to be strong enough. He empathized and did more by overcoming it. And so tonight, we come to see again, to remember again, that we were the ones who put him there. Our eyes in sleepiness, our eyes being seduced, our eyes overwhelmed by grief and turning to self, our eyes revealing the weakness of the flesh. Put him there. And knowing how great the agony would be to experience that suffering and the agony of his father's wrath, our Savior, friend, Redeemer, King, the perfect man, prayed three times, take this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. And my friends, that Savior, the Savior, he did it. He did it. That all who would trust in him might live forever. So we come to this table above all full of gratitude, thankful for his faithfulness, thankful for the freedom that we have in Christ, grateful for the sacrifice that he endured perfectly, thankful for what we know happened on the cross, thankful that he is present with us. And as we come to this meal, it is meant to feed us. It is meant to open our eyes again to see anew the glory of this gospel. This meal is for Christians. It is for those who have admitted their absolute dependence on Jesus, who know that they are not saved any other way except by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. If you have not yet professed faith in Jesus, this meal actually is not for you. And if you were to come and eat, you would drink judgment upon yourself. That's what the word of God says. 
So this night, if that's the place you find yourself, I pray you'll just pause and ponder upon all that you've heard. But if it is for you, because you're in Christ, oh my friends, come with joy in your heart and tears on your cheeks, a heart that is beating because he made it beat with gratitude that says, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for loving me. I love you. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, we are all over the pages of this narrative in one place or another. And our eyes, Lord Jesus, must be fixed on you. Lift them now, we ask, O Lord. Lift them that even as we hear and sing and recite the story of this incredible night, that something would begin to break loose inside us that reminds us of what it means to be the children of the living God, saved by the perfect blood and righteousness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. This we pray in his holy name. Amen.